Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading. Hey, can we give a can we give a shout to the worship team for leading us this morning? Yeah, come on. Woo. Yeah. We are in uh, week number. I don't actually. I don't remember what week number we're in. We are in one of the weeks of studying through the book of Hebrews. Uh, I think it's twelve. Is it twelve? Twelve. That sounds right. Uh, we'll call it twelve. Um, we're studying through the book of Hebrews. The sermon series is titled Jesus First. The whole letter that was probably more like a sermon the first time it was written down. The whole letter makes an argument and an exhortation for all people to put Jesus first and foremost ahead of everything else in their lives. And we're going to talk about that again this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to get there in just a second. But first I want to ask you uh, a question. Here's the question. Are you a control freak? Anybody willing to? Okay, wow, yeah, there was a few hands that just like, bam, yep, right there. Now, I've got, I, I just, I want to let you know, I, in fact, am not a control freak. I love giving away control. I love letting other people take control because then they have to deal with the consequences. I can wipe my hands clean. I'm not a control freak. Except, except maybe when it comes to my running shoes. You see, because you need to place the running shoes on the right spot and in the right order on the shoe rack in the garage because the order relates to what shoe you wear on what particular run you're going on. And when other people try to move my shoes, ah, there's a right way to do this. Whoever might need to hear that, if any of my children were in the room, <laughs> there's a right way to do this. But don't worry, I'm not a control freak. But speaking of a right way to do things, I just feel like it would be better if we could acknowledge that when the dishes are loaded into the dishwasher, there is a proper system. The large plates go in one quadrant, the small plates go in another, the bowls go in another, and miscellaneous items. You can't just put them anywhere. You have to keep them. It, if we would all just follow the right system, which it turns out is my system, <laughs> more dishes would get cleaned better every time. I feel like that should be obvious. Amen. Can I get an amen? amen? But don't worry, I'm not actually a control freak. I wonder about you. Are there any areas of your life, what, what's the area of life in which, when you're honest, you just need to have control? Maybe you're like Carl, there is no such thing as an area of life that I don't need to have control. Maybe you're like me and you're firmly in denial and you're like, no, I love giving up control except for the few exceptional places. And isn't that the thing about exceptions? We love to give to ourselves the very exception that we will never grant to someone else. <sighs> Henry Cloud and John Townsend wrote a book, great book, one of their older books, called How People Grow. And when they talk about what does it mean for humans, especially Jesus followers, to find a life of full health and flourishing that God designed for us, one of the things they talk about is learning the difference between things we can and should control and things that even if we try are out of our control anyway. 
because it's good to exercise control. For example, self-control. My words, my actions, my attitudes, these are things that it's good for me to try to control. They are, in fact, mine. So it is my job to control them. But other things are out of my control, and it's wrong for me to try to hold on to that which is not mine in the first place. Here's some of their suggestions. If you want to be healthy, you have to ask yourself, what am I trying to control that is not mine to control? Some examples. The emotions of others, not mine to control. The outcomes of my choices, not mine to control. The opinions, ooh, I wish I could control this one, but the opinions that others hold of me, the mechanisms of the world around me, the enactment of judgment upon others. In the text we're going to read in Hebrews 10, it says, the Lord will judge the people. But man, wouldn't it be nice for just a minute, I think, if I could just sort of like, excuse me for a second, God, I'm just going to go ahead and sit in that judgment seat and ooh, I don't think I got some good ideas. It seems like there's this inherent temptation in us to try and take unto ourselves control over things that are not ours to control. And even if they were somehow under our control, we shouldn't exercise it anyway. But Cloudon Townsend suggests that actually there's some things we really need to, to recognize about this desire we face. First of all, we, we think we want control because we think if we can control it, things are going to go better, Right? But the fact of the matter is, this effort to control always comes with a cost. We think we can make it better, but in fact, we're going to pay a price when we try to control things that aren't ours. Here's their example from trying to own the responsibility of judgment, which is not ours. They say, you cannot simultaneously judge someone and know them. When we judge one another, we miss out on the opportunity to know one another. Trying to take control of judgment that's not ours comes at the cost of relationship. Judgment will always put up a wall in those relationships. And, to make matters worse, control always comes with a cost. And the desire for control usually ends up controlling You, you become a slave to that thing which you want, but you can never get, but you keep telling yourself, this next time, it's going to go the way that I planned it. Turns out, this desire to control things that are not ours to control, it's not a new desire. As a matter of fact, uh, as I was studying Hebrews chapter 10 uh, these past couple weeks, what came to the surface for me was that this ancient Jewish Christian congregation who is living in the Roman Empire and enduring some rather challenging circumstances in life, I think in what we're going to read today, we're going to see how they tried to exert control on the opinions of others and on the results of their choices in a way that was not theirs to control. And so their pastor, who wrote this first letter, spoke to them about how they must appropriately consider their life circumstances when they're trying to hold on to too much control. And just maybe, those same words that this pastor wrote to a church thousands of years ago about their inappropriate desire for control, 
maybe these same words might be useful for us in whatever circumstances we're facing in our lives, in whatever ways we're trying to take responsibility for things that aren't ours to own in the first place. Here's where we've been. Like we've said, the, the largest chunk of text in the book of Hebrews focuses on the idea that Jesus is a new high priest with a new tabernacle who brought a new sacrifice so that he could establish a new covenant. The old covenant, which did great at the time, has now been rendered obsolete. God no longer works through a nation, a single nation. God no longer works through the law. The law is not abolished. It's been completed. Now the work of God happens through the new covenant, and specifically through God's new people, his church. His every tribe, every tongue, every nation, gathering of people who have pledged to faithfully follow Jesus. And the people who pledge to faithfully follow Jesus must now live out a life of faith no matter their circumstances. And that's the topic that leads into the second half of Hebrews chapter 10. Um, We're going to read a big chunk of it. We're going to start in verse 19 and go all the way to verse 39. People tell me that our attention span in America has has been reduced to just two or three seconds. But this is going to take, you know, this is going to take a couple minutes so here we go, like, like get your, turn on your, like your attention span switch in your brain. We can do this. We can do this. I believe in it. Um, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us, through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely Do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And my righteous one will live by faith, and I have taken no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Pray with me again. God, may your word both your written word that we've just read out loud, but your living word which speaks to our hearts and minds. May your word transform our lives. Amen. I'm going to talk about three things. Um, I'm going to talk about their circumstances just for a bit. And then I want to name what, what I think are the implied responses this congregation made to their circumstances. And then I want to focus on the three main exhortations their pastor gave them. So first of all, we just get a list of some of the brutally hard stuff going on in their life. They are experiencing great conflict, suffering, public insult, persecution, imprisonment, confiscation of property, and history tells us that whether or not for this particular group, certainly for some Christians around this time, loss of life. And all of this hardship specifically because of their proclamation of faith in Jesus and their participation in Jesus' community, the gathered church. That's a pretty, whoo, that's a pretty heavy, like, like what this text is saying is that this congregation of Jesus followers that the pastor is writing to is going through some of the most painfully, brutally difficult stuff we can imagine And they're going through it because they're living with a public, out loud faith for Jesus. But that hardship is causing them to have some second guesses, to have some doubts about this faith. And so they're responding in what I think are two major ways. It appears that the community of Jesus' followers have been responding with withdrawal and concealment. Withdrawal as in, if I'm suffering persecution because of my participation in the faith community... Maybe I'll just take a little step back from my participation in the church. Maybe I'll just distance myself a little bit from those other Jesus followers. Sure, maybe they'll be ridiculed every day when they go to the marketplace. But if I keep myself distant, if I withdraw just enough, maybe I'll be safe from some of the same suffering. And then on top of that, if a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ is causing them to endure some of these hardships and they're saying, you know what, maybe I'll, I think I'll still believe in Jesus. I think the context is that they still have pledged their faith in Jesus, but I'm just going to conceal it a little bit. I'm going to believe in Jesus 
privately. I'm going to speak the name of Jesus when I'm behind the closed doors of my own house, but I don't know if I'm going to speak the name of Jesus in front of other people because if I lose my business or if they take my house or if they throw my, you know, family in prison, then, ah, you know, then that might not be worth my speaking the name of Jesus out loud. I wonder if any of us have experienced hardship or suffering. I wonder if we've ever been ridiculed. Or I wonder if we've even just been afraid of being ridiculed and found ourselves doing the same thing these ancient Hebrews did, going, maybe I'll just take a little step back. I'll withdraw ever so slightly and conceal my faith just a little bit. You know, not totally, but I'll just conceal it a little bit so that I can control the opinions and the attitudes of the people around me. Maybe I can even control what happens to me. Well, the pastor gives three challenges for any of us that'd be willing to admit that maybe we've done this same thing. And here's the three of them. First, he says, no, 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 no. Christ is the only one who's actually going to give you the strength you need in this hardship. So don't withdraw, don't hold back, don't conceal, but rather hold unswervingly, this is verse 23, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Our hope and our faith is not powerful because of how powerful our own faith is, as I have no, I have no faith in my own faith. I only have faith in the faithfulness of Jesus' work on the cross and death and resurrection, which has power to save me. The problem is, and by the problem I mean the challenge we have to face is, the life-giving love of God, proven in the resurrection, guarantees we have strength to endure, but it doesn't guarantee all hardship has been removed from our life. And that's the tension they're trying to work out. The gospel does not eliminate difficulty from life. Rather, it gives us the hope and strength we need, which is greater than any difficulty or any hardship we might ever face. And so we, we're tempted. It's natural to think, you know what, when things get hard, maybe I'll just pull back from the church, or maybe I'll just pull back from my faith, because we got to do something when it's hard. But the harder it gets, the more we need to remind ourselves of where our hope truly lies. Amen? Anybody want to... Amen. Uh, I was thinking about a great movie, one of my favorite movies, Gladiator. I don't know if it's a favorite movie. It's a good movie. One of the best scenes is the first group battle that the Gladiator Maximus needs to fight. He's now in Rome, in the Colosseum, and he's not fighting all by himself. He's fighting with a group of other gladiators. And as he's walking out into the arena, you know, it's packed full of people. People are going crazy. They're cheering like wild. He finds out that some of the other men that are going into the arena with him used to fight with him in the army. Because if you know the story, Maximus was a former Roman general who's now been in prison. So he's fighting with some of his former soldiers. Now, they're walking into the arena, and the assumption for gladiators is all of them are going to die. That, that's what's going to happen. The gladiators go out, and they come out, and they get killed. Maximus says, hey, stick with me, and whatever comes through those doors, we will survive it. And I think about 
What would, I mean, what would that have been like? This idea of the gladiatorial arena. This is real history. Real men walked out and had to face their own death publicly before others. What would it have been like to be standing there, assuming whatever comes out the door is going to be too strong, but then hearing somebody say, hey, we fought together before. We will overcome it. And sure enough, out of the doors come horse-drawn chariots with archers on the back, and the wheels have giant swords sticking out of them. Sure enough, right away, a couple of the gladiators scatter and go running about, and they quickly are killed. But Maximus draws everybody together and brings them kind of back-to-back in two lines so that as the archers circle them and shoot, they're protecting one another. (laughs) And then there's this great moment where the, the, the chariots keep circling and keep getting closer to the line so that the swords on the chariot are hitting the shields and you can tell everybody's freaking out like, oh, this is the time to run. Like those chariots are going to get us. It's just this, the, the, he, I can't trust Maximus right now. And Maximus keeps going, hold, hold. And sure enough, the chariot comes around another time. It looks like the sword is just going to slice through the line. And right at the last moment, he yells, Divert! Divert! And the shield line moves out so that the chariot runs into it and flips over. And sure enough, because the men held faith in their general, they were able to overcome what would have otherwise been impossible odds. How much more for us who don't have a human general just with a little bit of experience, but we have a Lord who has experienced, as the author of Hebrews said, every temptation, every sin, every suffering, every kind of hardship any human has ever felt, Christ endured it, and when he overcame death, he overcame everything, so our faith has reason to be placed in him, no matter what comes out those doors of our own lives, looking scary. But how do we do that? Because sometimes I'm tempted to just think the weight's too heavy, so I'm going to withdraw, I'm going to conceal, but I just know I can't do it alone. And the pastor anticipated this, so here's his next exhortation. Verse 24. We we hold unswervingly to to the faith we profess, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This temptation, when things get tough, to withdraw or conceal my faith, is in fact a temptation to do the very thing that's going to make it harder, not easier, for us to persevere. Cutting yourself off from full engagement in the life of the church is cutting yourself off from the thing you need most to survive life's hardship. And the pastor's looking at this congregation saying, no, 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 don't give up on the one thing you actually need to make it through this trial. I picture it this way. When my wife and I got married, we had a friend who made a couple pieces of pottery for us. He made a little plate and a chalice that we used to celebrate communion during our wedding ceremony. So this plate and chalice has been on display in our family room for many, many years. 
Well, a couple years ago, my youngest child saw the floating shelves next to the fireplace that the pottery was displayed on, and he thought to himself, that would be really fun to climb. And climb he did, and it turns out that the anchoring system that I utilized to place these shelves on the wall was not up for a 40-pound, three-and-a-half-year-old child. So all three of them just come crashing down off the wall, and the plate and cup fall through the air. The plate lands gently in a basket of blankets at the base. But the cup hits the brick on the fireplace mantle right underneath the shelves, and it shatters. But it didn't shatter into a million pieces like the glass last week. It only shattered into like 10 or 12 pieces. So I'm like, all right, all right, I got this. I bring it out to the garage, and the base is still pretty secure. It's like two pieces. I put them together, and it holds together. I was like, all right. And the top cup part, I kind of like, okay, where does this piece? It's like a little puzzle. And pretty quickly, I figure out where all the pieces of the puzzle go. But just because I put the pieces of the puzzle into place doesn't mean when I let go, they're going to stay there. They need something to help them stick together. They need an adhesive. They need a glue. I think that that's how it is with our lives as well. When it, when it feels like our lives have fallen quite a distance and broken apart on whatever brick mantle place out there in life, I think sometimes we have the intelligence to go, you know what, I think I know what I need to put these pieces back together. I think sometimes we can understand it. But just because we can understand it doesn't mean those pieces are going to stick back together. And by God's design, participation in a worshiping community is the glue that holds together the sin-broken pieces of our lives. What we do here on Sundays, when we gather in our homes to fellowship and hang out with one another, to share meals with one another, to study God's word with one another, to pray with and for one another, by God's design, that is the glue that he has given us to hold together any broken pieces that have shattered when our lives are falling apart. So let us not stop meeting together, as some have been, and I think all of us at times find the temptation to do when things get hard. And last but not least, um, the third exhortation they give, which actually came first in the passage, verse 22, says, and we do this in a way that we draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith Brings. What does it mean to draw near to God with a sincere heart? What struck me is, what it means is we live an everyday, everywhere life of worship. Life where we take everything that we are, every hope and dream, every joy and celebration, every hurt and sorrow, every fear and, and concern, and we bring it all before God. And we say, God, this is who I am. You already know this, but I'm going to lay it down before you. That wholehearted Life of worship is what God calls us to do together so that we can support one another in this journey, so that we can hold unswervingly to the one thing that we need to endure any and all of life's hardships. We use the phrase around here often, vulnerable 
worship. God calls us to to a, a connection with him that involves vulnerable worship. But here's the thing. I'm only vulnerable with people that I know pretty well. So let me ask you, do you know God? Not do you know about God. Not have you read some Bible verses about him. Not not have you met somebody else who seems to really know God. How much would you say that you know God? There's a famous verse in Proverbs. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Some other translations say, in all your ways, submit to him. The verb in the Hebrew, acknowledge or submit, the verb is yada. Everybody say yada. I wonder if that's where we get the phrase yada, yada, yada. I don't know. Somebody made a Seinfeld reference to me after the first service, but I didn't know it. But they said it was funny. Sorry. (laughs) That's what happens when I go off script. Uh, Yada. Let me give you another place in scripture that the same verb is used. Uh, It's in the creation account. God has made all creation and then he makes man and woman. And he says, the man, yada, with the woman, and she became pregnant and bore them their first child. Some translations say the man lay down with the woman or the man um, had relations with the woman. But most modern translations say the man knew the woman. And sure enough, that verb is yada. It means to know. If you're going to acknowledge God, if you're going to submit to God, the only way to do that is to know God. And the biblical image of what does it mean to know this God who gives you the strength you mean, well, the picture they give us is in the same way that a husband and wife know one another in order to conceive a child. Certainly the the physical aspect is not there with our God, but it means there's something so intimate You're willing to be vulnerable with the deepest parts of your life. When you know God, vulnerability is the obvious way to interact with him. Because what other way could you possibly be before the most loving and giving and grace-filled being the universe that made the universe? The middle of Hebrews chapter 10, as it's calling us to worship God with this authenticity, it also has this rather stark and grating warning. It says, it is no small thing to come into the hands of the living God. And I was kind of scratching my head going, wow, whoo, it's holding a pretty big stick right there. Why is that warning there? Well, the one commentator I was reading summed it all up in a a powerful phrase. They were saying, you know, this is a call to worship, a worship in community, a worship that grows our faithfulness, a worship of the God who made us and loves us, and it's a warning not to turn away from that God. And the reason is this. If you really know God, the opposite of worship is apostasy. If you really know God, Not if you know the twisted things about God. Not if you know the perversions of God that other people claim. Not if you know some sort of broken, uh, fallen version of God. I've I've done pastoral counseling with people and they've said, 
you know, I just can't believe in God. And I say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they talk for a little bit and I say, oh, what do you know? I don't believe in that God either. I would reject that God every single day. But when you come to know God, the true God, the living God who gave his life for you, worship is the only and natural response. So let me ask you, if life's hard and you sometimes feel the temptation like the ancient church did to withdraw from community or conceal your faith, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about these words that this pastor spoke to you As we say, what's your move going to be? Because our desire in teaching and studying the word of God is not just to know it, but that we would live it in action every day. I've got two thoughts. First, if you're trying to hold on tight to control things that aren't yours to control, the first thing you need to do is you need to admit it. (laughs) You need to admit it to yourself. I hope and pray you can admit it to somebody who you trust and you know and you can be vulnerable to. And I, I hope you can know God so well that it would be obvious to admit it to him and say, God, this is where I'm holding on. And man, my hands are getting tight from all this gripping. And after you admit it, the next thing is you must surrender. Not just surrender that control, but actually surrender your entire life. Because surrender is the opposite of control. One way to think about this is to actually just think about one of the foundational practices of of faith, to be people whose lives are characterized daily by prayer. Prayer being this moment, not just where we speak words at God, but where we enter into intimacy with God. Spiritual author Thomas Merton says, to pray means to change. Because if prayer is really that moment where we are with the God we know and with the God who knows us, there is no possible outcome but that God will change us when we surrender to him. Christ gave us an incredible picture of what this surrender looks like. It was right before he was going to be arrested, very near to the end of his life here on earth, And he knew what was coming. He knew that when he got arrested, when he got arrested by the Roman soldiers, they were going to brutally treat him with whips and beatings. They knew that after that, he would be put to death, crucified on a Roman cross. They knew that the physical agony, he knew the physical agony would be greater than most humans could even imagine. And he knew that he was doing that for our good. And so he went to a garden with his disciples and he went to pray. And knowing what was coming, he had a moment of admitting what his preference would be if he could control it. He said, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. God, if there's any other way, like, like, can we try... I don't know. Can we try just getting together and holding hands and talking it out? Like, God, if there's any other way, I would love to try that. I wonder how long was the pause when Jesus prayed after this statement? I mean, I know when things are hard in my life, 
And I'm thinking, maybe what I really need to do is surrender to God and trust God, but I'd rather just control it. If I pray this, God, if there's any other way, like, let's try it out. And you know what? I'm going to wait for a couple years. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and take my, you take all the time you want, God. I'm sure you'll change it sometime. And then I won't have to do what deep down maybe I know you're calling me to do. It said he was moved with a sorrow so great it was even unto death. That's how great Jesus' sorrow was when he said, if there's any other way. And then, and worship team, you guys can come back up. Um, And then he prayed the greatest possible prayer of surrender. He said, if there's any other way, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess that far too often (laughs) we think we have the answers and we have the power and we have the ability to bring about the change we need in our lives. We try to control the opinions others have of us. We try to control their actions. We try to control the outcomes in this world we're living And when things get hard, we sometimes shrink away from the very thing that we know we need most to endure. We shrink away from community. We fall out of the habits of faithful prayer and worship. We loosen our grip on you, the one who is faithful. God, I pray we might all call to mind right now anything and everything in our lives that if we're honest, we're holding on too tightly to, but we know it's not ours to control. And with that thing clear on our hearts and our minds, we pray, God, not as I will, but as you will. Help us, we pray, to surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.